Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Henry and I founded Volant out of our own frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes we saw in badminton all over the world. But now it's so much bigger than that. Our mission is to simplify the badminton journey and show the world how incredible badminton is. So make sure you check out our badminton basics at volantwear.com and follow us on our socials at volantwear. First of all, we'd just like to give a shout out to Nathan Tang, our guest on episode 63, because he became an all access patron. So Nathan, thanks a lot for the support and thanks for keeping the podcast running. So our guest for today's episode is Iris Wang or Wang. She is a 26 year old women's singles player from Los Angeles, California in the USA. And she competed at the 2016 Olympic Games, is a two-time bronze medalist at the Pan Am Games in 2015 and 2019. And her highest world ranking is number 30 in the world. Outside of badminton, she really enjoys reading, drawing and binging on Netflix shows. As an athlete, when I was younger, I dreamt that Olympics would be the pinnacle, but actually When I qualified, I had a breakdown because I made it and then I was struggling like, oh, what do I do now? I think because when I was traveling and playing so many tournaments, that was the end goal. And so when I reached it, I felt lost. Also like realizing that a lot of how I judge myself is how I judge other people and just trying to let go of judgments of others and slowly uh, myself, that helps just learning to accept like my flaws and stuff, accepting them and wanting to improve and be better, but also like knowing that it's okay that you're here at this time. You can still be better, but it's okay if you make mistakes. So Iris, thanks a lot for coming onto the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what are you Netflix binge watching at the moment? I was binging Prison Break recently because someone suggested it and I finished one season in one week and it was pretty bad. (laughs) 
Because there are heaps of seasons, right? This takes me back to a time when I was in Denmark before as well. This would have been 2007, 2008, and they were already up to many, many seasons. I literally remember watching Prison Break in Denmark. So you're about 12 years behind, (laughs) 13 years behind. Yeah, I think it's from the 2000s. It's so old, but it's so good so far. All right. So when you said it was pretty bad, it was you watching a season worth of it was pretty bad. Is that what you meant? It was uh, bad for my productivity. Yeah. But it was a really good show or it is a really good show. Yeah, for sure. I've certainly heard some great things about Prison Break and I personally haven't watched it. But yeah, again, it was quite some time ago when I heard of the name Prison Break. So surprised that you'd be watching it in 2020. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not on Netflix US, but it's here in Denmark. So gave it a shot. Awesome. So Iris, let's jump into the badminton part of your life. When we speak to anyone on the podcast, we do like to get a bit of a background as to where you came from and where you started, how old were you, etc. So let's get into it. What's your badminton story? I started when I was eight years old. And it's a funny story, actually. So I have a sister, Rena. She's older and she had a friend who was from Malaysia and they had a birthday party and I tagged along being the younger sister. We went to the park and I saw badminton for the first time. I was very intrigued and very amazed by like, oh, what is this new sport that I've never seen before? I wanted to play with them and it wasn't very good, so they wouldn't let me play. And then that day I went back home, told my parents that I really wanted to try it out. And so here I am. So eight years old and you were just trying to play in the backyard, was it? Or in, in the park? Yeah, yeah. And where was that part? Where was that? Where were you based at the moment? Where were you living at that time? I was living in San Gabriel in Los Angeles as well. Okay, cool. So you are eight years old. You've come back from a birthday party. You're thinking, what is this sport? You ask your parents if you could play. Then where did it go from there? Did you play in school or did you find a local club that you played at socially or once a week or got some coaching? How did that look like? Actually, we had a close family friend that played badminton already. And so we were able to ask her like where she trained and stuff. And then my first club was San Gabriel Valley Badminton Club. And I still train there when I go back. Oh, wow. So I've been there my whole life. Yeah. A pretty rundown, but it's still there. Yeah. Be pretty nostalgic when you go back there then. Yeah, yeah. You learned badminton there. You became good at badminton there, supposedly. It'd be lovely. I guess, look, you said that it's a bit rundown. Is it similar to some of the venues that we have in Australia where essentially they're just big old shed? I actually haven't been to many clubs in Australia, but I guess so, if uh, the way you describe it is correct. (laughs) Just a big warehouse. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a big warehouse. That doesn't have air conditioning. So in the summer, it's filthy hot inside and in winter, it's freezing. Yep, yep. That's pretty much it. Typical tin, tin badminton center. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's home. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure even though it is a tin shed, I'm sure it brings back a lot of great memories as well. So what you were telling us about when you first started playing badminton in a park, trying to learn how to play it. Now I'm not that familiar with St. Gabriel and Los Angeles as to weather conditions are like. What was it like playing in the park, your very initial time of playing badminton? Was it super windy? And did you actually get a good appreciation for the sport? Or was it when you actually went to the St. Gabriel club that you actually got properly exposed to it? Yeah, I think definitely when I went to the club. And that's when I saw like actual players who could hit it. 
And there was this young girl that was so good. And I was just so amazed by how they could keep the shuttle flying. Whereas like when we were at the park, it was just like, oh, I got a hit. Like, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) So you started playing at the club there. And then from there, when did you decide to start taking it more seriously and say play in your local competition, state competitions and start to try to win matches and win tournaments and be the best badminton player you could be? I think at first it was just for fun. I wasn't planning to play competitively or anything, but there were junior tournaments and my coach at the time thought we should sign up. So we signed up for fun, me and my sister. I actually did quite well during that tournament. I got maybe second or third. After that, we thought, oh, wow, like I'm okay. So I'll train a little bit more and then started playing more junior tournaments. I would spend like every afternoon almost just going there and playing games. Loved it so much. Like all my uh, school projects were like badminton related. I'm not sure when exactly we decided to try for Olympics, but I actually tried in 2012 with my sister and I didn't qualify that time, but my sister did. Was that for women's singles, women's doubles when you were trying to qualify for 2012? I was trying to qualify for doubles with my sister, but my sister was also trying for singles. We were both playing both events at that time. We know that you did manage to make it to the Olympics in 2016. It's not all bad news. So for podcast listeners out there, Iris did make it in the end. Before we explore that further, I just want to come back to something you said earlier. You said that you made all your school projects about badminton. How do you do that? What kind of projects are we talking about here? I remember one time we had like, we had to do a poetry thing and then I would write about badminton in my poems and stuff like as my love and stuff. Wow. (laughs) It's embarrassing. You still have them? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have them at home in the US. They're pretty uh, bad though. (laughs) Should get you to read it. Oh man, I'm glad I'm in Denmark. (laughs) A rhyming poem. Did you do any profiles on players? I guess an assignment could have been that you did a biography on someone. Did you do any, any of that kind of work? No, actually not. Mainly just like writing essays and stuff, personal essays be just an obsession with badminton yeah definitely sounds like and and i don't want to sort of force you to continue down this pathway of telling us your obsession about badminton but this is the badminton podcast Ara, so you're in safe hands let's go a bit deeper here with i guess when you are known as the person who makes everything about badminton as a school especially in a country like the u.s what kind of response did you get from the people around you Hmm, that's an interesting question, actually. I don't remember, actually. I think I just, for my friends, they were very supportive, especially because badminton took up so much of my time. I wasn't able to hang out with friends like after school or on the weekends or for uh, holidays. I felt like a lot of people didn't know what it was and they just probably thought like, oh yeah, that's something she's really into. Yeah, there's no like, I wasn't made fun of or anything. I think most people just don't know what it is at that time. So were you training at the same club the whole time? Yeah, pretty much, actually. So were you training as a squad or as a team or just with your sister and a coach? At the beginning, it was just group trainings. As I became more serious, it was some private training with my sister. So like maybe two hours for the both of us or maybe two or three times a week when I was younger. And then it slowly became more and more growing up. 
So if we go into that a little bit deeper, so if maybe a listener's out there who's maybe a young teenager, or maybe they're 13, 14 years old, if you look at what you did in terms of training, so you said at the start you were doing maybe two sessions a week, two or three hours, and then it increased over time. How did it increase? If you've got approximate ages, like at 15, we're doing a bit more, 16, a bit more. And then if you look back at it, if you could change it, do you think you would change the amount that you did? So I think up until elementary, it was just like on the weekends, a group lessons, and then maybe one or two private lessons. And then starting from school, I think, which is when I was maybe 11, 12, 13, I think more increased load, maybe like three times a week, three times of private, and then on the weekend, so five times a week total. And then in high school, probably almost every day, I think. I was pretty satisfied with the training load. I think when you're younger, it's important to just have fun doing it, to enjoy it Mm -hmm. and to want to play. So I feel like there's no need to train so much because sometimes that takes the fun out of it. Whereas you can yeah, just go and play matches and like doubles with your friends and stuff. But for me, I think I wouldn't change anything, but I think that's also my mindset of like no regrets. Okay. So you're training in the US and as we've had a a quick chat earlier about in the US, how there's not a great deal of funding or like a really clear pathway forward, especially as a junior. So a lot of the junior players would tend to drop out when they reach college time, right? But for you, you decided to keep going and play badminton instead of stopping. So what drove you to make the choice that I guess wasn't the more common choice and how did you actually make it? What was the process you went through to choose to put off school and pursue badminton when maybe your teammates and friends were dropping badminton to go to school? Yeah, I think for me, I've been very lucky because my parents have always been very supportive of this. And I think coming from like an Asian background, I think we're usually more focused on like school is more important. So I think I was lucky that my parents, they just wanted us to do the best in whatever we loved or wanted to do. So I think that is a really big factor. I think just having the support, like both financially and emotionally, I think that made a big difference. And then I think also like just the love of the sport, I think. And then also like, What's really nice about U.S. colleges is that you can... I went to school for one year in 2012, and then I took three years off of school. So it's nice that for that college that I went to, we could take however long we wanted and then go back. And have you gone back? Yeah, I graduated last year. Oh, well done. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Finally free. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess in making that decision, there's maybe a few key points, because I guess this is a question that I get asked a lot and you probably get asked as well, Iris, from younger badminton players, what do I do? Do I keep playing or do I stop? So from the sounds of things that helped you was the first thing is to have some support around you. So making the decision not so hard on yourself and putting so much pressure on yourself, having that support so you've got encouragement, someone to talk to, someone to lean on if you need to. And the second thing you said was about school. So I guess research, research about what your school can offer you in terms of time away and how long you're allowed away and how easy it is to come back after taking that year off. Is there anything else that you would say for someone who's a bit confused about what to do that you would say, hey, you need to look into this or just consider these specific things? I think in addition to those two points, I think finance is a really big thing because it's so expensive to play tournaments. 
there's no funding in the U.S. So the burden is on like the parents. That might be a factor that forces some like really good junior players to choose to go to college instead. Because at the moment, there's it's hard to get money in the sport, I'd say, in the U.S. or like through tournaments and stuff. How about the question of asking yourself why? So why do you want to do it? Is that burning desire or that burning goal strong enough that's going to make you want to make those sacrifices, travel, spend that money, work yourself that hard? What was your why or your underlying drive as to why you could do what you did? I think actually during 2012, when I was traveling with my sister and my mom, actually didn't quite know what was going on. I was just like going with the flow, like going to a lot of tournaments and then playing and then being disappointed when we lost. And I think after I wasn't able to qualify in 2012, I was very driven or motivated to qualify for the next Olympics. And I think that's one of the big motivators that drove me to work hard and like try my best. But I think it's also a love for the sport. I think it's nice to work really hard for something, regardless if you achieve it or not. I think there's something just nice about that. Yeah. Okay, Ara, so let's just get into this a little bit deeper now. I know that after you missed out on the 2012 Olympic Games, you had a a strong will and desire to make it to the 2016 Olympics. But other than just going to the Olympics and having that achievement as something you could say that you've done, What was the deeper reason as to why you actually wanted to do it? Was it because you wanted to make yourself proud or your parents proud? Was there something deeper underneath the surface that gave you that drive rather than just the achievement itself? Well, it definitely wasn't for my parents. I think for me, it was trying to be the best player that I could be and to see if I could push further. And I think also just as an athlete, When I was younger, I dreamt that Olympics would be the pinnacle. But actually, when I qualified, I had a breakdown because I made it. And then I was struggling like, oh, what do I do now? I think because when I was traveling and playing so many tournaments, that was the end goal. And so when I reached it, I felt lost. And I kind of lost that I had wanted to do it for myself and how I want to be better um, to see what kind of player I could be or the best that I could be as a player. I feel like I kind of lost that during the journey and then had to figure it out like in the months upcoming after qualification and then to the Olympics, that period of time. So in that period of time, in the, in the lead up to the Olympics for that period where you were almost soul searching Iris, what kind of advice did you get from others or where did you seek the answers that you were looking for? I feel like my coach helped me a lot. I think it was just like a reminder that it's not over. Like just because you qualified, that's not the end. We have to set a new goal. How far do you want to make it in the Olympics? Like, are you going for a medal or are you just going to be there? That helped a lot. And then just playing a few tournaments during that period of time and just like trying to get back into the rhythm of playing for myself instead of for some external goal. What does it mean to be the best player you can be or what type of player you can be? Like, what did you find out about yourself during that period? And like, You mentioned that, you know, you want to be the best player that you can be, but what does that actually mean to you? I think for me, it means continuous improvement. If I wasn't able to do something or struggling with a shot, 
or mentally and then being able to do it at another tournament and stuff. I think that's what for me meant I was improving. And I feel like for me, that's what I try to do, I think now. So you've obviously gotten a lot of good advice from your coach. Have you had any other people or even if it's the same coach, but any other things that they've really taught you or you've come to realize has been really good advice as you look back on it? So during the 2016 qualification period, I was traveling with my coach, Alistair Casey, at that time. There was actually many times during that period where I wanted to stop because the stress, it's like too many tournaments and being burnt out. And I think for me, it was tough love of him like saying, you're not going to be able to achieve your goals if you don't like put in the work and stuff. It was hard, but I think it's what I needed to hear at that time. It is sort of an extension of the advice that your coach gave you. And I suppose when you were traveling, there are a lot of additional stresses you're aiming towards getting towards the Olympics. And and, and with the lead up, it sounded like you were lost and, and looking for answers. And when you actually explain it, it is quite aligned with what I believe is one of your key drivers from our conversation is that growth mindset and just that constant improvement, right? But yes, you do need to put in the hard work as your coach has guided you towards. So I'm glad that you've sort of looked inwards, but with that guidance, you've been able to strive towards being the best badminton player that you can be. When you did finally make it to the Olympics, how did you go? I was actually pretty satisfied with how I performed. I feel like I gave it my all. Actually, during the Olympics, I was planning to stop playing badminton after. So it was quite bittersweet for me when I finished my last match. But something brought me back, so I guess it wasn't over yet. But at that time, I think because of the burnout from traveling and the stress, I lost some of the passion I had for badminton. And I was ready to move on to other things and go back to school and just take a break and not be in that badminton environment for a while. So how long did you actually take off? Like after the Olympics, you went back to school. How long did that take to finish? And when was it that you started to think about badminton again? So right after the Olympics, I just stopped. I would play, I think, maybe once a week for fun. But there are periods where I would just not play because I was back in school and then getting used to that environment. I actually, because of the tournaments I played in between qualifying and Olympics, I somehow qualified for Worlds the next year. So I was like, oh, hey, I uh, qualified. Uh, Maybe I should uh, train a little bit and then play for that. When I found out I qualified, I trained for that. I think that was in May of 2017. And then I played that tournament. And then I was like, oh, hey, maybe I should continue. I didn't really think about it too much. Because I was still in school, I had three more years left. After that, I went back to school again and then just focused more on school. And then for summer, I actually don't remember how or why I had signed up for some tournaments for fun. And I played in a few tournaments during my summer break in 2018. I had so much more fun, I think, because I didn't have the pressure of having to perform, having to get results, I think, and like counting the points meticulously. I enjoyed it again. And so I started training a little bit more. I finished school one quarter early and it was right in 2019 
So that's when Olympic qualification period started again. And then I thought I would try and play some tournaments and have fun. I was training and playing tournaments almost full time since when I graduated until Corona hit. It's really interesting just to hear the change in mindset because the Olympic journey is a very stressful one, right? You are counting those tournaments and you're thinking, if I can't get a minimum of 2,500 points for this tournament, then there's no point in me going. And there's just that constant pressure of performing, going to small tournaments, but then having to perform up to semifinals, finals and win them. It's such a big gamble because if you go for a super series tournament, 500, 300,000, for example, you can get a lucky then maybe you should have gone to a, a challenge somewhere and maybe won the tournament. It's funny how that mindset, that stressful mindset during the Olympic period, when that was kind of diluted and gotten rid of, then you could just go back to enjoying to play badminton again rather than having that pressure. Since you've been through that journey of the ups and downs of the pressure and then going back to playing and having fun again, have you noticed that your mindset now as a badminton player has changed? So much. And I think especially during that period of time, also another US player was competing for the spot in 2016. So it was like watching her ranking and then watching mine. And then like, as you said, with counting the points and deciding which tournaments to play. So when I came back out for fun, it was so different. I was able to enjoy the game a little bit more. And then I think because of that, I also was able to play better. I think when back in 2016 or even before that, I had a lot of focus on like results or like level of play, like how good I was. A lot of my self-worth was dependent on how well I did in badminton. Maybe it was going through college or just growing up, realizing that my self-worth is independent of how well I do or how good I am at badminton. That has also changed a lot and I'm having more fun playing badminton and not taking it so seriously. Since then, I've been so much happier. Yeah, from the sounds of it, I mean, earlier when you were telling us about how you applied badminton to everything in your school life to where you've decided that you might even walk away from the sport. I can't imagine what that would feel like because for me personally, I've always played badminton for badminton. The results are important, certainly, but it's always been about the love of the sport. And and I can't imagine a point where you'd actually lose that feeling, that passion for it. I guess I'd really like to know you did emphasize that during your Olympic journey, there was a lot of stress. And as Jeff alluded to, and as you said as well, you know, you're constantly looking at your ranking points. You're constantly looking at your performance and stressing about your performance. Is there any other additional stresses that, you know, that really pushed you over the edge? I think for me also, because my parents were funding my tournaments and training, I think I would feel guilty. Sometimes that would add to it. Is this all worth it? And stuff like that. That's a big one, isn't it? Because you see all the sacrifices that they make and the time and money spent, and you want to make it worth their while while making it worth your while as well. And that puts the more pressure on which, yeah, I know how it feels. And in terms of Henry, that Olympic journey, Henry is a very stressful one. And you do go through those periods of time where you're down in the dumps and it's, it's really hard to pull yourself up. So Iris, you talked a little bit about your self-identity and your self-worth being tied and linked to what you did on the court, right? 
how did you manage to make that disconnect or reduce the pressure between the two? Because I guess that's going to come up in a lot of people's lives, whether it's badminton or whether it's their career or how much money they make. And that's how they tie what they're worth. Did you do anything or do you have any advice as to how you can find your self-worth without linking it directly to something external like an achievement? I think what helped me was like reading some books, self-help books. Also like realizing that a lot of how I judge myself is how I judge other people and just trying to let go of judgments of others and slowly uh, myself. That helps. Just learning to accept like my flaws and stuff, accepting them and wanting to improve and be better, but also like knowing that it's okay that you're here at this time. You can still be better, I think, but it's okay if you make mistakes. Yeah, I agree entirely with that, Iris, that it's important not to be so harsh on yourself and that it's okay and to forgive yourself. In one of our episodes, Jeff mentioned these ants, automatic negative thoughts to actually forgive yourself for having those kinds of thoughts and that it is okay that for whatever reason you may not be as successful in whatever aspect a b or c in life relative to others because there's always times where you would compare yourself to the performance of somebody else right i think that's a really important thing to take away from your advice there iris And I do love a book recommendation. And I think one of our other podcast guests gave us a book recommendation the other week. And I guess I'm going to ask you for a book recommendation for the listeners as well, who might be doing a bit of soul searching, who might be trying to alleviate the pressure of tying their self-worth to the performance in whatever they do. What book in particular do you recommend for our listeners out there? I think one of my favorite ones for like sport and kind of mental health was the inner game of tennis. I actually just wanted to go off on like what Henry said about comparing myself to others. I think, yeah, that's also a really big point. I think especially in sport where it's direct competition, it's very easy to say like, oh, I'm better or I'm worse because I lost or I won. Yeah, I think just focusing on yourself or like accepting where you are helps a lot with like self-worth. And knowing that someone else's success is not your failure, I think, was also something I learned along the way. So, Iris, after you graduated from school from university and you got your degree, you decided to play lots of tournaments again because you want to get back into it. You've got a new mindset, not as much pressure. You're playing a lot more for fun. But of course, you're trying to compete and do the best that you can. Unfortunately, coronavirus hit and then there's been a delay and a stop of all the tournaments. So where are you now and what are you doing? So when Corona hit, I stopped playing for three months, I think, just because everything was shut down. And then I actually was slowly getting used to like just staying at home and chilling. And then I actually, I feel like I became more introverted because I was so used to being at home. But when the courts opened unofficially, I started to train a bit again but it was hard to find motivation to play since there were no tournaments and didn't know what I was training for exactly and whether this would be a period of time to learn something else to see what's next. But I got an offer to play league in Denmark and so I'm here now training five times a week. So training full time again and then just learning and experiencing life here. And Holbeck, that's the city, yeah, in Denmark that I'm living in, yeah. 
It's really small. So how often are your league matches? I think because of Corona, the league matches have been changing. So I was actually unable to make the first two because I couldn't get a visa to come out here because of travel restrictions. I think there are nine total. If we do well, there will be playoffs. Yeah, great. So once this league is over, what are the plans for Iris? I think because the bigs were postponed, I will continue to play until April. Some tournaments, if there are tournaments by then. And then not sure yet, actually. Just taking it day by day, especially with Corona. I never know what's going to happen. So I've just been living in the moment. Yeah, that's great. I think uh, a lot of people are doing that at the moment with what's going on with so much uncertainty around the world. And now, Iris, if there are people that want to follow your journey, you may not know you know, what's going to happen and, and what your plans are, but there might be someone out there who wants to follow you and find out. So if listeners do want to follow you on your journey, is there anywhere in particular that they can find you? Actually, don't post a lot of things on social media. I use Facebook most often, but yeah, I rarely post things. There's a Facebook page and I guess I could or should update it a little bit more often. Okay. So Iris, just to wrap up this episode of the podcast, for the listeners out there who want to get a little bit of your wisdom and knowledge after an Olympic Games, trying for an Olympic Games in 2012, all the lessons you've learned, all the ups and downs, all the pressures and all the realizations you've had as a player, are there any key takeaways or key lessons that you think really helped you that would help anyone out there listening? I think one of my favorite things to let go of judgments, I think that can be applied on court. For me, like when I'm playing and I hit a bad shot or something, to just like let it go or to look at it objectively. Oh, I hit it with a little bit too much force, stuff like that, instead of thinking like, oh man, that was shit player or stuff like that. I think it also helps outside of badminton of just being more at peace with others and yourself. Yeah, that's a really great point to finish up on, Iris. And I'm sure podcast listeners would get a lot of value from that if they can take that advice on because we all know that hopefully all of us try to be at peace at most times, but judgment can sink in whether that's judgment on ourselves or judgment of others. Then just remember that it is okay and, and to forgive ourselves for having those thoughts and get back to trying to have more positive thoughts if possible. So thank you, Iris. And thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Iris. Bye. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too. Because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback, or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.